Hey, this is Jeffrey Eisenberg. You're listening to a Change Your Filter podcast with Tall Paul. Listeners, welcome. If you have as much fun on this podcast as I've had in the pre-recording of this, getting to know our guest, Jeffrey Eisenberg, then you are in for a treat. Jeffrey, welcome to the Change Your Filter podcast. Thank you. Um, I feel welcome. Good. Thank you. And um, we were just discussing before we pressed the record button that the day after a national holiday, when Jeff and I are in charge, is going to be another national holiday. Because it doesn't matter what day it is. It could be Labor Day. It could be Memorial Day. It doesn't matter if you were on the boat and enjoying too many adult beverages or no adult beverages or you stayed up watching a movie or you went to bed early. You have an emotional hangover when your work week starts on a Tuesday and it just throws things off. But how are you feeling, Jeff? Yeah, or at least a late start date. Remember those when we were kids who'd go to school, they'd do the late start dates. I, I grew up in a place with snow. So New York City wasn't a big snow, but like three inches was enough to delay right. the opening of the school. Something like that. So what would lead to a late start date in your current home, Austin, Texas? Or a late start day? Oh, rather? Not having coffee? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's an emergency. But... Um, you know, we don't have many late start dates because my wife manages teams that are worldwide, right? And so they get her on the phone from Europe and then they get her on the phone from Pacific later on, so in the morning. So there's no late start dates over here. Unless there's a little bit of weather because Texas, as much as Texas kind of promotes itself as being able to handle anything, the thought of snow, sleet, freezing rain, ice, any sort of accumulation will shut the entire state down for ages. Am I right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the snow, snowstorm. Okay. Um, to anybody who's not in Texas, they'll have to realize that there were like three inches of snow on the ground, but it was tragic. We, we, everything closed down. The, yeah. the power grid shut down and, you know, you couldn't go outside. Like people are like, well, you're from, aren't you from New York? Couldn't you just start like, no, I don't have a shovel. There's no right. reason to keep any salt. Um, you know, you couldn't go out the, on, on the steps because they were all slippy and slidey, right? Right. Um, and I, I couldn't even get the ice off the windshield of the car because, you know, those little scraper things that people have when they don't you live exist. in a normal climate? Um, nobody has one of those. Right. Right. So we were stuck for days. Yeah, it was it was big deal. It was our snow apocalypse. Um, you know, in, in, in Chicago, they do this in June and they don't think about it. <laughs> it's a whole different world in Texas. I want to talk about Texas before we get into learn more about you and your businesses and your books and all the things you've done in your career, which I think will span over multiple podcasts. If I'm being completely honest, let's talk about Texas. So you're in Austin. I, anytime I say the word Austin, I have to put an asterisk next to it and let everyone know that my favorite home service company in the world, ABC Home and Commercial, and Pest and Lawn and Windows and Christmas Lights and all the things that Bobby Jenkins does is my favorite company of all time. All that said, I had an opportunity to move to Austin. It was between Austin and Charlotte seven years ago this month, and I chose Charlotte. And I want your opinion on Austin. Just objectively speaking, you've been there a long time. 
What's going on in Austin? Do you like it? Do you love it? Is it overrated? Is it underrated? What's going on down in Texas? I've lived here 11 years. I don't have an immediate sense of wanting to leave. Um, but a lot of the things that make that made this very livable affordability, well, that's gone. Okay. Yeah. I mean, seriously, um, property-wise, this is way more expensive than Chicago. And, and I use that as a relative place. It's a big city with higher prices, right. right? This is this is already outrageous if you want to live in central Texas. Um, you know, you're looking at a million plus for a small house. And it used to not be like that, like just a few years ago. No, when I when I moved here eleven years ago, I mean, you know, I, I gotta be very grateful for this for the appreciation in the housing stock sure. um, as a homeowner, right? Yeah. But um but you can't really move any place and move laterally, right? Everything has gotten more and more expensive. So there's some really good things, but in some ways it's overrated. I think that if you are young, like in your twenties, this like, this like still me. yes, there there is still really good reason to be in Texas, right? There's a, yeah. a it's a much younger city. Yeah, um, yeah I'm old. I'm 56. So I'm you know ancient, but. Um, you, you know, if you if you can live with a roommate or you can afford to pay your own rent or whatever it is, this is still a great place to live. But probably um, to raise a family for other things, it's, you know, it's too much of a good thing. Gotten overrated. Right. Yeah, quickly. It, does some of that have to do with the exodus of Northern California and kind of the tech migration of, I don't need to live around San Francisco, so I'm going to move to Austin and get a ranch or is it just people want to move to Austin? So before the pandemic, mm -hmm. okay, pre-COVID, right? Um, my understanding, and again, you know, I just, I read stuff just like anybody. I'm not that smart, right? But my understanding was that while everybody was saying that people were moving here from the coasts, that was slightly true, but most of the immigration into Austin, right? Most of the people coming into Austin were from other parts of Texas. Oh, interesting. Okay. So that, that was, that was the truth. I do think there's been a huge influx of people, um, from both coasts, but I don't think the numbers are really clear yet. The one thing that was really clear is, um, like them, you know, in New York, you know, once you sell a home in New York or once you sell a home in California, you think to yourself, oh man, I can buy one here for cash. Right. Right. And that was true for a while. Right. So they'd come in and they, they, really didn't need a mortgage, right? If you might need to save that much money. So it did inflate the houses. And during yeah. the last two years, um, so the re my realtor friends tell me that people weren't even looking at houses, right? They would just, they would go on Zillow and they'd make offers. Sure. Yeah. I sold a house in Texas like that. And we're going to talk about marketing today and talk about storytelling and all that. Hopefully we'll get to it. But I always believe, so I lived in Texas. I'm technically at one point, I was a registered Texan. I think there are a lot of great qualities of Texas. Now to say Texas is a wide term because from state line to state line, it's just a massive amount of land. But my whole point in saying this and tying it back to marketing is I think that the marketing for Texas is really good. Because I think in some areas, I think it's a little overrated, but it's super diverse too. There's a lot, you can get a lot in Texas, but I do think that like 
there's this narrative. So I live in North Carolina, so I'm in the South. So I have a bunch of neighbors and friends and everyone who has chosen to move here. I've, I know very few people who were born here, but there's still like this, like, I don't know if this is the right word, migratory kind of longing to looking at Texas where things are different. Things are better in Texas. Everything's better. in so everybody's just kind of sitting around arms crossed, like maybe one day we'll make it to Texas and we'll live in a ranch in Bastrop or San Marcos or in your above the room garage, whatever they call frog room. So anyways, we're rambling. Thank you for joining and happy kind of Monday, but actual Tuesday. So where do we start? I want to start here. I want to, you said you're 56 years old. I I am. I'm old. I want to hear your story. I want to know kind of where you came from. Okay. Don't, don't, don't make me think of starting off like Steve Martin. Okay. (laughs) What my, what my mind did immediately was that, that would not be that would not be cool for me to say, but that's that's almost what came straight out of my mouth. I'll have to I'll have to Google it, but I think I know where you're going. So, um, but tell me your story. Who, who's Jeffrey Eisenberg? My story. Oh man, I don't know how to tell my story. So, one of the most interesting things people find about me is that I speak Spanish equally as well as English because it was my first language. Okay, mm-hmm. so my my parents were immigrants from Argentina, so. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up, um, in a house kind of, a uh, I grew up in, in Brooklyn, New York in a blue collar house, right. Um, kind of, uh, on the poorer side of that and didn't know that, you know, cause I was really interested in history. I wanted to be a historian. First, I wanted to be an archeologist and then I wanted to be a historian when I realized that I really didn't want to spend all my time like digging and cleaning little things off like that that I, I figured out what archaeologists actually do and it wasn't you, you know wasn't as glamorous as I thought it was but I wanted to be a historian and I figured out like I was like 17 or so I was you know I was working and um, I understood that my parents were not wealthy enough for me to go into academia mm-hmm. and I decided I needed to make money and and I was learning finance in school and so um, I got a job as a management trainee in a bank. And um, that wasn't working out. And, and it just wasn't working out because I'm not really good at being told what to do. Okay? Um, this I is early working. 20s. Oh, yeah. I was, you know, I was 19. I was going to school. I, I went to school and work. I, got it. I, I was paying my own school. Um, and so got this job as management trainee and that was not working out, um, because numbers are hard. Okay. Being told what to do. I was working in the controller's office. I went from the department and I had, I had taken accounting already. Right. And I did pretty well in that. I kind of understood that there was a, a sense to this, but you give me too many numbers, my eyes glaze over and I feel like I want to go hide someplace, right? Like, just leave me alone. And so um, I got this opportunity to work on the foreign exchange desk. It was like a really junior position, but I was really interested. Like, this whole idea of trading was fun, right? And they were buying gold and currencies. And so I got that job and they gave me a position. 
So see, this is what you can do with a 20 year old. Okay. 21 year old. You can give them a job with an impressive sounding title. I was a manager. Okay. Here you go. Manager. Um, I didn't manage anybody. Okay. But my job was to call around to all these other banks. I remember I called people in North Carolina and Arizona. This was, this was in the early days with faxes and stuff. Right. So, oh, yeah. um, I would call around and give people the prices that we would pay for their physical banknotes. You're like when you travel and you need physical banknotes, right? The, the bills to travel. So yep. we would do that. And unbeknownst to me, right? There had been four other people who had this job and failed at it. Okay. But I didn't know. I also didn't know that there were things that you couldn't do. And I didn't know that people who made um, $16,000 wouldn't work till 11 o'clock at night, right? I mean, I just didn't know. You were a manager. You had to. I was a manager. There were things to do. I got them done. That's right. And I You're important. this thing <laughs> into a really successful department. It was kind of funny. We, we, were, we were, you know, I was 22 and I was trading with all these different banks and so really it's just because i didn't know right if i had known better i wouldn't have done it right yeah. you couldn't get me to do that today not not as an employee right like it was crazy what i did yeah. but i did it um you, you know and uh so i did that and then i went to work um i stayed in the foreign exchange kind of business for a while but in my late 20s i left the business Okay. Um, I had been fairly successful. I had made money. I had had this, this dream that I would be a millionaire by the time I was 30. It was a big deal to be a millionaire. Oh yeah. Okay. In the eighties, right? Like when you we're talking about being a millionaire, it was just a lot of money. Um, and I did that. Okay. You know, it was a net worth thing. It wasn't a full, I had a million dollars cash in the bank, but it was pretty cool. I was 28. Yeah. Um, and I went to start my own business and of course that led, um, first divorce, everything got all screwed up and decided what I really, that what I really needed to do was leave finance. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I wanted to do sales and marketing. So I recruited my brother who was going to graduate school. Okay. And we, um, we started this business because he had taught me all these things. So by the way, what, what, what we were curious about was why people do what they do, right? So we would, we would trade all these psychological studies, all these, like, at that time, it was books, right? So we were trying to figure all this out. And we were working with companies and we were doing sales training at first. Mm -hmm. And while we were doing sales training, we had this really smart model. The, the model said... Um, we'll work on a success basis, except that what we found was that if we were successful, everybody had reasons why it was successful. Okay. Sure. Not yeah. us. Yeah. Okay. Um, if it wasn't successful, the only people at fault were us. Okay. It's and like so we did that for a while until we figured out that, uh, um, that we needed a different model. And my brother was fascinated by the internet. 
Okay, he was one of the early adopters. I mean, when he was a kid, he had a BBS, um, and he kept saying, "Do you see these morons online?" I mean, and, and he was saying not morons, okay, but I'm sanitizing it. But he was talking about the people who were saying, you know, that look at all these eyeballs. People seriously in 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 the '90s, people were excited about eyeballs, okay, and you could literally go to an e-commerce site and not find a place to check out. Like you, you could find experiences where you could not buy things. Okay. No matter how badly you wanted to buy them. Um, and he was like, look, they're breaking all the rules, all the rules, all the rules. And we were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's four and a half years younger than me. Right. So, you know, he was my little brother. Um, and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he started to pick up some clients. And so we decided to go in that direction. Um, and we built a business, okay, called, uh, at that point it was called Future Now, and we built it into the very first agency that ever did uh, conversion rate optimization. We invented the term because we were, we didn't know what to call ourselves. We were being invited to search engine optimization conferences real early on, right? Early 2000s. And, um... And it seemed right to say, well, what we do is conversion rate optimization. And we did that. We did that. We wrote um, some best-selling books, okay? Got them on the New York Times and Wall Street Journal's bestseller lists. And I think I may have, yeah, one of those. This was was the second New York Times bestseller, Waiting for Your Cat to Bark, okay? and, and even that, it had a, we thought of the title before we actually had any content for it. And the publisher Completely okay. loved the title and wanted us to publish with this title. So that there's a story that we tell in the book about why we use this title. Okay. I can tell you that it was invented in a hotel in Long Island where my brother and I went and actually like we did like a little retreat to get away from work so that we could actually talk about this and we made something up. Okay. You so, back into it. Yeah, oh, no it's so clever, you would never imagine that it wasn't true, but that's, that's right. really the case. So we um, did that, did a lot of public speaking, had a lot of really interesting clients. Um, when I say that, all the, all the big names, the um, admins, the Microsofts, the, you know, you, you name them, we were, we were doing them. And you were the internet guys. That was kind of what you were internet e-commerce. Yeah, yeah. If you if if you had traffic already, we could convert it into sales. Interesting. Right? We, we, you know, um, my brother and current co-founder of the company of DataTurk, the company we're currently working with, wrote a book. Wrote a book called um, "Always Be Testing." Right. We became pretty well known for this stuff, and then. We stopped doing that in 2009. We divested ourselves from the company. Um, and then we started consulting, not on purpose, okay? But we didn't know what we were going to do, and we didn't have to, if you know what I mean. Like, it wasn't that we sure. were fabulously wealthy, but we didn't have to, right? Like, it was like we had some time to think about it. Um, but what was interesting was we started getting phone calls right away, Okay. And people were searching for us. And of course, the person who people knew was my brother, Brian. So mm-hmm. we started as, if, if you go today to brianisenberg.com, that was the website of the business. Okay. Um, and so 
Um, we consulted. We consulted to people like Google, Hewlett Packard Enterprise, um, Walmart Canada. You know, big, big names. Um, and life was good for a while. And while we were working for Google, we did an analysis for them. Okay, um, they had all this data. Seriously, it was about this thick when we printed it out. Um, and they were studying the small and medium-sized businesses okay, um, where they sold AdWords to. So the people who hired us were the people who do AdWords. They wanted to know how to use AdWords better to sell AdWords. Interesting. Okay? Um, and what we did was with that whole analysis, we put together a presentation. And our presentation took everything that they thought was true and turned it on its head. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I won't make it more difficult than this. I, I think they just didn't realize it was just tunnel vision that you get when you think one way for long enough. Um, they didn't get that all the, the early adopters had already done it and that the people who didn't know how to do it hadn't done it yet. Right. right? And so we did this thing that we tested where we got people who looked a little older. If you notice, all their ads all usually have young people and they own, you know, like organic dog biscuit bakeries. And they're either in Brooklyn or they're in San Francisco. Eating so avocado toast. We did this experiment um, with them. We made them a ton of money, which they later abandoned, which is a, a luxury you can do when you make more money than God. Okay. Right. Because it didn't, it wasn't winning awards. Okay, so yeah. whole thing there, but um, but while we were there, they wanted us to teach them how to do this analysis. Why did we come to all these different conclusions? Why did we think that way? And they kept paying us and asking us that question. And the interesting thing is that when somebody asks you a question and they keep paying you, you, you kind of encourage to go look for the answer. Okay, sure. and Brian and I got on the phone with older clients. And realize that a lot of our older clients were older. And when I say that is like they were, you know, the guys who hired us at first, they were directors. Maybe they were VPs. Now a lot of them were CEOs, COOs, um, right? And they were no longer really able to answer the questions. So we did something else. We did this little project. We went online and Googled ourselves. It was obnoxious. Okay, but seriously, like if I show you the um, the emails between ourselves, you'd say, "Oh my God, you filled your head with this stuff." But the people who were talking about us were not these people who gave us the testimonials on LinkedIn, right? Those were people who had already done the work, they'd gotten their promotions, everything else. But the people who were still talking about us were the people who we trained while we were there or found stuff or we inspired them, they read our books and we found that they did one thing in common. And that one thing was they told stories better than anybody else. Okay. And when I say they told stories, it's because it's really hard to relate to people with numbers. Right. Okay. And what we would teach them to do is teach them to think about the customer. And so by teaching them to think about the customer, we were, um, we were constructing these, these personas 
very different than the way most people use that word. Okay. But we were doing a process and we found that that was the real key to it. We then went ahead and we started, um, we wrote a, we wrote a quick book called Buyer Legends. We, we built it out of the presentations we were giving at Google and training their people on how to think like this. The Executive Storyteller's Guide. Yes, that one. Um, yeah. And it was a, it's a quick little book. I mean, it's the tiniest book we ever wrote. And um, oh, your audience. Yeah. Ah, okay. Quick read. Awesome. So we started this company called Buyer Legends. And so the consulting became a little bit more formal. We started training people. We started talking only about this. Before that, we had called the process. We used persuasion architecture. It was way more complex, way more difficult. Buyer Legends turned out to be a lot more portable, a lot easier to teach, a lot simpler to explain. And, um, and it was cool, right? So we did that. And um, we continued doing that. Till today, the company still open, still has clients. Um, however, during the pandemic, right, things had slowed down and we started to get asked some questions, just different kind of questions. And some of the people who I've made this story so long already, but I'm going to take a step back. No, you're fine. We wrote this other book in the interim, which we should have written first. Like it was the better book than Buyer Legends, but Buyer Legends need to be published because everybody needed kind of like a little handbook. We wrote mm -hmm. this book. It was called Be Like Amazon. We wrote it in 2017. Okay. Yep. But it's not just Be Like Amazon. That would make you think it's an e-commerce book. It says even a lemonade stand can do it. Okay. Yep. And people were like, what do you mean by that? Right. And so the concept was this. It was, well, the principles that Amazon um, uses to do this are universal principles. They're not um, things that you need to be in e-commerce for, right? There were some very basic principles and we started talking about them. And because of our experience, we were able, able to also find some people who could talk about them. But we co-wrote this with Roy Williams. I know some people in this industry know Roy Williams as well. Roy Williams is a good friend of mine. Um, and he co-wrote it with us and he had introduced us over the years to some different people in the service industries. And in there was Ken Goodrich of Gettle, right? And so, um, we told his story of the red screws. I can, I, I can tell it if you're interested, but I would, you know what, for the listeners who've not heard the story about the red screws, this is going to kind of pull you behind the scenes on how to architect a story that becomes just kind of legendary. So if you wouldn't mind share with us the red screws. So when we talk about being like Amazon, what we're talking about is a customer centric narrative. Okay. That's a fancy way of saying that, um, if it isn't something that you're doing for the customer, you're doing it wrong. Okay. okay? Um, and the way that Amazon thinks is they could be a lousy employer. Okay. They could be a lot of things. But what they're always trying to do is do the thing that the customer actually wants from the customer's point of view. Okay. And so lots of companies say that. Okay. And I have some interesting statistics on this. Um, you know, you can ask executives whether they think they're customer centric and Bain and company did that a few years back. Um, I could get you those statistics if you'd like. Um, but basically what they found was that while, the vast majority of people said, yeah, we're customer centric. When they went out and asked their customers, their, cu their customers were like, that company's not customer centric. 
that wasn't a bad faith argument. You know, it's not that people say they're customer centric because they don't actually know how to think about it, right? Mm-hmm. So at Gettle, one of the things that they did was that was truly customer centric was they say that, um, what is it? I, I forget their tagline, something about doing it right, even when it's the hard. right way, not the easy way, not the easy way. There you go. Right. Thank you. Um, and so that was that that was their tagline. Okay. And one of the ways that they made that real, okay, is that they painted their screws red. Now you've got to say to me, like, painting the screws red, what's that about? Well, if you want to do a great job, according to Ken Goodrich, you got to go out and you have to remove every screw, right? When you check the air conditioner, then you'd have to put them back tightly each and every one. But it's one of the most common things that people don't do, right? You cutting a corner. The thing is by painting them red, it would stand out like a sore thumb, right? Yeah. So here was evidence that we're doing the thing that's good for the customer, right? right? And so if I go into your company and I ask, okay, how if you say you're customer centric, how would I actually experience that as a customer? Right. I want to be able to hear from you. Well, this is how the customer experiences it. Right. Because that's what's actually important, not whether you look at it or not. And so we heard stories like that. We heard about, uh, we, we also got to interview um, Dewey Jenkins, who's in, uh, in, in, in Charlotte, is like, you know, I've got, I, I, I've got to say, basically, you know, other than Jesus. Okay, he's probably the most popular person, right? Like nobody else doesn't know Dewey Jenkins, and he's from Morris Jenkins. They've they done these amazing campaigns, and we had figured out um, some amazing customer centered stories from them, right? And so we got a little bit interested in the trades. I've been in and around some of the people for a while, and one of them, um, a friend of mine, Elmer Subiate from San Antonio has an HVAC company down there, does pretty well. And he called me and he asked me this question because years ago, he asked me some questions about a website. I had helped him and I could, could I talk to him. And so we sat down, we had lunch and he showed me Service Titan and I was not impressed. Okay. Because he couldn't get these really good reports out of it. Now he had, he had um, another thing called DataCube, I think, and he was using that to get some data. But it was just basically the data that Service Titan had left out. It wasn't it was just easy to easier to find data as opposed to something insightful, right? It was useful, right? But people had been building these things. And I came to the wrong conclusion. I helped him out and I came to the wrong conclusion. Our very first conclusion was the reason that business owners in the trades aren't looking at reports. It's because reports are hard. Okay. And I, I I mean, seriously, we just said, well, we're going to build this thing and it's going to have reports and the reports are going to be simple to read. They're going to have one question that a human being would ask. And then it would answer it with just the simplest possible way. We can answer just that one question. It was a really, really cool idea. And we, we, we got, you know, close to 20 companies just interested in it just to test it out. 
And what we found was that they were telling us, oh, yeah, that's great, wonderful, something nobody logged in. No one, I mean, no one logged in. Rarely. Okay. Yeah. You built but, a great product that no one's yeah, yeah. using. But the customers were telling us, and here's the thing, right? Customers will often tell you what you want to hear. You really mm-hmm. rather want to watch what they want to put there to it. We, we could see that they weren't logging in. Um, and so we started to, to wonder why. We asked a few people and we started talking to some of them and, and they became more interested in what we were doing. Um, and they were asking us, what does it mean? Right? So we'd get on and we'd say, what, what does that mean? Because everybody has KPIs. They talk about KPIs. They talk about numbers. The thing is, if you hear a number and it's up or down and you don't know what to do, that's just more noise. Okay. Right. It's just more work, right? Like, okay, I got, I got a job already. Do I need more work? And so we were just saying, okay, no, this is how we read it. And mind you, we're not, we weren't experts in the service industry. I, I would say that we're still not experts in the service industry. I'm not sure I ever want to be an expert in the service industry. What we were doing was basic business analysis. We were looking at these reports and, and saying, okay, we can see where there's where there's some problems. Um, and as we went along, what we realized was that they were enjoying it. We were enjoying it. We weren't charging for it at first. And then we said, you know, would you pay us? And they said, yeah, which is nice because because it, it wasn't uh, we needed to Here's see a if tip jar actual right because if you're not going to be selling reports is this a product and we were like oh we're back to doing consulting we didn't want to do consulting okay but we did figure out what it was so we're in san antonio in this really so in san antonio they have some amazing mexican food for obvious reasons really really yeah. cool we went to this place um Elmer's family is originally from Mexico. Okay, we were we were eating there, and um, it's delicious food. And Elmer says, "You know, you guys aren't charging enough." And we were like, "Well, pay us more." He was like, "Well, okay, I'll do that." He did. By the way, he agreed to just do that on the spot. But that wasn't the point. He was like, "You don't understand. You're you know, I've made blah blah blah, and and I mean, I actually have testimonies where he says he's made hundreds of thousands of dollars a month based on what we told." Okay, but what he says is, would you just do it for us? And he said, you know, as business owners, he was just speaking for business owners. And I, I, I can I can picture him saying this, right? I'm, I'm, I'm looking out. Um, there's too much sun coming my way. I'm trying to look at his face and lights coming. Okay, but I'm paying attention because this is interesting. And he says to me, yeah, you know. The reports, they're just work. I don't want to sit down and have to do work. I don't understand the reports and then have to think about them and then have to decide what what really, you know, what needs to be done. Like, you, you're not even telling me what direction it needs to go in. And I was like, okay, but we're doing, but aren't we consulting right now? Isn't that different? And he was like, yeah, yeah, but I want it done for me. And I remember I said to him, you mean like, like a baby bird. And I did this thing. It's like, you know, like, like that. I think that analogy covers it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's what he, what he said was, yeah, like that. Okay. He was not insulted by that. He was like, yeah, just like that. And it was the time 
where the light bulb went off. Yep. I'm sitting there with John, who's, who's my co-founder, um, and we're sitting there and we looked at each other and I was like, yeah. So the, the, the people who were really excited by Data Turk were the people who were talking to us. And we thought we were just explaining things. No, we were actually wrapping it up, giving them the insight and saying, okay, here's all you need to know. This is the behavior. This is the action that's needed to influence whatever KPI. More, more simple than that. Keep chewing it up. Yeah. You know, like, um, here's, here's your best performing call center agent. Okay. Okay. Um, if everybody on your team performed as well as her, just as well as her. Okay. You would be making $400,000 more a month or almost $5 million a year. That intrigued him. Yeah. Okay. Because, and by the way, we started to explain things, not as month, but by the year, we started saying things like, well, this is worth almost $55 million. Okay. Mm -hmm. On an annual basis. That's not strictly precise. Okay. People who do business analysis, we did business analysis for years. We did, um, you know, we worked with very sophisticated statisticians and data scientists and people who really took their numbers seriously. But here's the deal. Precision is when you know, you know, when you're really trying to get close and you're really trying to understand. But if you're trying to get accurate, if you're just trying to get the data across, precision isn't necessary. The deal was the rest of the team, it, it, it kind of wasn't performing as well as it should. Okay. Um, and so he was like, well, what is that person doing? And I said, I don't know. I'm not in the, I'm not in your call center. Right. But the insight was enough to know that the differences that don't look big on a daily basis and don't look big on a weekly basis. Because remember, when you're when you're sitting in the call center, if you're a call center manager, you're managing by the day, by the week, by the month. Mm -hmm. Sure. Maybe there's an annual review, but you're not looking at this as the way that we were. Right. As a business analysis, what is the gap? What's the actual scope of the opportunity here? And so he went to work on that. There was a bunch of things that he did. Um, he attributes millions of dollars of sales to us. That's wonderful. But we didn't do it. We just made it simple enough. We didn't give him a job. We said, oh, no, this is where the problem is, specifically. And then he went and he solved it. Some of it, one of it, he got, um, we, we actually helped him find a consultant. Um, the other stuff he did on his own. Okay. Sure. And it was it was really satisfying. And so what we realized is that that's what people wanted, right? They didn't want um, the KPI, even the dashboard, right? The concept of the dashboard, it's kind of cool, okay? But if you're up 0.3% today over yesterday, what does that mean? Right. Okay, I, you know, maybe it really does mean something. Maybe it doesn't. And so what we were trying to do was be respectful to the business owner, right? We finally did what we didn't understand. Is I put myself in those shoes and I said, you know, I've owned businesses all my life, it, it, you know, basically since my 20s, right? So it's been 30 something years since I've worked for somebody else. And the hardest thing to do was to work on your business. Everybody's heard this, right? And this is this is the key to what Data Turk is all about, right? Is 
if you want to work in your business, well, God bless you. You should work in your business because it's necessary, right? However, working on your business are the things you do to make your business better sustainably over time, right? When you work in your business, you're being an employee and you're doing the thing that needs to be done, but it's today's problem, right? You're not fixing things forever. And so that's the difference, right? And when you look at a company as an owner, as opposed to as an employee, okay, as an owner, as a shareholder, and you think about value, right? And I'm not talking about selling a company, okay? Because everybody wants to think about value and they're selling. No, no, no. The value of a company is made up of two things. Your customers, right? The relationships you have with your customers and your systems, because your systems take those relationships and turn it into cash flow. Right. Okay. So the real objective with Data Turk, and pardon me if I just interrupted you, then is to connect the data with insight and give actionable insights to owners that they can use yes. to put systems or or insights alongside systems That's to improve right. the business. Do you have more yes. examples of some of those? That call center insight was incredible, but well, because the, the 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 systems are the value, right? Like, yeah. Listen, I, 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 one of the things I did, and, and, you know, you might think of this as masochistic because it was a little bit, right, is I've listened to, I don't know, 60, 70 hours worth of podcasts, industry podcasts, okay? Um, so much so, like, I, I, I got introduced to Tommy Mello, and I felt like I knew him already, right, because I listened to a bunch of his, I listened sure. to a bunch of other podcasts, Um and, and it was kind of cool because I wanted to hear what people were thinking. And, and I didn't know enough people early on. And so I had to listen to other people. And then I was able to kind of talk with my clients and get better ideas of what different people were thinking. You know, it's, it's what's fascinating is, okay, that people like Tommy who are, do, you know, who are going to do over 100 million, they're thinking about things. But the people who are doing like 5 million, 10 million, 15 million, they're not thinking about those things. Yeah. Okay. Um, they, when you hear them talk, you would suspect that they're talking about similar things. They're not. They actually aren't. Okay. And it's because it's very hard to put yourself in a different role, to actually think of yourself as, okay, today I'm not the employee. So I'll give you an example. I was talking with um, one of our clients and they've, they've had another call. They've had a call center problem a while okay um he owns this company with his brother okay and we were we were talking and they haven't made progress on this okay we've we've helped them analyze some of their technicians they do their contracts differently they do their turnovers differently they did they were doing a whole bunch of things to really improve but the call center that was just not budget okay um and this brother was responsible for the call center, the one that I was on the phone with. Um, and I was actually on a video call. And at one point I said, look, it, it, imagine that his name was Paul. Let's, let's, let's play it out. I said, Paul. Great name. I want you to imagine that I'm your partner. I bought out your brother. Okay. You and I, we're 50-50 partners. And we're having a shareholder meeting. We're having an owner's meeting. Okay. And I'm now a silent partner. I don't know anybody who's in your business. 
If I went ahead and said, listen, we've had this problem. It's going on 18 months. A bunch of times I've heard you say, we're working on it. Okay. And things have not gotten better. Would it be okay if as a partner, I said to you, why is the person responsible for the call center? Why is he still employed? I said, would that be, well, he said, well, but that would be me. And I said, no, 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 that would not. Paul is a shareholder right now. Okay. Paul, the employee, Paul, the person who works in the company responsible for the course at call center. He, he doesn't know about call centers. This is hitting close to home. Yeah. I was probably more explicit than that. Um, but I said, no, that guy, I said, would would you be offended? You'd be like, no, I, I I'd probably think you were right, and and so we went, we 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 role played a little more, and I said, listen, I'm not trying to insult you, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings, okay? But you would, if if you were not the person who was running that call center, you would fire yourself, or at least you'd move yourself into a different area, like. You know, you may have other talents. I'm sure you do, right? Because you're running this whole business. And, and by the way, they're, they're doing like 11 million in sales right now, right? They're, they're not idiots at all. I said, but this is not your gift, right? Like you were not born knowing how to do this. And this is not something you like. And this is not something you know. And he was like, yeah, okay. Um, that was the difference, right? Now, right. this was a recent phone call, right? But the systems aren't in place. Right. He needs to fix the systems in order to fix that. And he was thinking of it as an employee. Right. So I wasn't calling him out and saying, oh, you're a failure because, man, you know, if you're a failure as an employee, just change your job. Literally, just you own the company. Don't do that job. Do a different job. Find somebody who can do the right job and you'll change the value of your company. So when I talk about the working on your company. It's being able to step out for that moment and say, okay, yeah. there's something going on here that doesn't matter if I'm at fault, right? It doesn't matter if somebody else is at fault. Fault doesn't matter. The key is it's a systems problem. We can fix it. Let's talk about systems through the lens of the book, Be Like Amazon. As you mentioned systems, that's kind of where my mind drifts to our what are the principles, systems, key insights from the book, and what can listeners learn from Amazon when they think about running their business? And when I read the title to the book, I immediately thought, I'm an e-commerce company. I think, yes, yes, everyone needs to be like Amazon. Everyone needs online pricing and reviews and same-day shipping and, and that level of kind of operational excellence. But be like Amazon's much different than that. So yeah, yeah. So operational excellence is is absolutely necessary, but it doesn't come from. I started from how Jeff Bezos would start it. Okay? okay, what he would say is that what's important in his company. Okay, if you're a retailer of any sort, what's what's going to be forever true? Is there ever going to come a day that somebody says, "Nah." I don't want that right now. I want you to deliver that to me like as slow as possible. Put that, put that on hold. Give it to me whenever you want. Right? No, everybody's going to say, I'll pay I now. want it immediately, right? Because that's true. Is anybody ever going to say, um, 
oh my God, there are so many choices. You have too much inventory. Uh, no, right? I want to have that selection. Is anybody ever going to say, um, you know what I really want you to be is more expensive. We can come back to this one, right? I want you to be more expensive. No, everybody's going to want to be, to think that they got a fair price. Okay. So he looks at those things and he says, this is going to be true 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. I can manage based on those things. What I can't manage on are the short-term expectations that people have, right? So if I do the right things, this is a very faith-based kind of thinking, okay? But it's not an airy-fairy or religious concept, okay? It's, it's very down-to-earth. He's like, if I do the right things for the customers, I have faith that in the long term that pays off, right? Whatever the stock market does, whatever, you know, if, if something is not profitable in a quarter or in two quarters, I'm, I'm not worried about it, mm -hmm. okay? What I am worried about is that I'm fixing systems, right, that make it better for my customers, okay? And so um, we, the, the, the way that they think about it is kind of odd, right? When they think about um, the four pillars of Amazon, which is how we described it. And what we had done is we had written an article, wow, years ago about the four pillars of Amazon. We had given a few presentations about it. Um, and what's kind of interesting is when our friend Anna Grace, who, who left Best Buy, and she was interviewing at, at Amazon for a job that she didn't get, but they had sent her, um, it, was a, it was a senior job, they had sent her an email saying, you know, if you want to read about our culture, read the following things. And they sent her a list of, I don't know, like a dozen different articles that she could read and whatnot. Most of them were internal. One of them was, I remember, was like a Harvard Business Review thing, you know, those kind of things. And one of them was our article on brianeisenberg.com about the four pillars of Amazon. Um, so, you know, people ask us, well, did, 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 people at Amazon and Doris says, well, no, not really, but we just, we just pay attention, right? We read these things. Right. We know that this is what they do. And so that's what it was. The four pillars, the way that we had talked about them was the first one is that they do continuous optimization. They're always trying to fix things. Always. They're never satisfied with the status quo. The next one is customer centricity, right? They put the customer in the center and you'll see why this is a kind of odd way of, of looking at the world. Then they have this culture of innovation and they're, a, um, they have this concept called corporate agility. Now, here's the interesting thing, right? If the customer is at the center of the universe, okay, what you're doing is that the reason that you optimize is to make things better for the customer. If you keep making things better for the customer, that in itself is a form of innovation, right? You're, what you're trying to do is you're finding new right. ways of making it better for the customers. And you get better and better at it, just like if you're, you know, like you're working out, you have muscles, you get more agile and quicker at it, right? Amazon is notoriously quick at making changes because they have small teams with everybody who has authority to do things. Nobody waits for permission. They just go ahead and do things. They have these very small, tight groups 
that are interdepartmental. So they don't wait on somebody, you know, who can do the programming and somebody who can do this. No, right. that entire team is able to focus on those initiatives and they get better and better at this. And it creates like a flywheel. And Jeff Bezos is famous for showing this flywheel in his presentations, explaining his company, but we had explained that as how their flywheel work. So Amazon is all about this mindset of improving things based on the customer really quickly. Okay. Through, even if it hasn't been done before, don't worry about it. Do the experiment, right. try again, try and try again. And they do these things and they stick. And Jeff Bezos talks about these two types of decisions you can make, right? There's like a type A decision, type B decision, right? Yep. He's like, well, for the most things that you do, you're not betting the company. You do an experiment. Right. If it doesn't work, go back to what you were doing. Okay. If you're going to bet the company, that's a different kind of decision. It's it a different decision. You don't make that decision. You just give it a little bit more thought. Yeah. Right. And that's how they started AWS, which makes them a fortune, you know, their cloud computing platform. Whatnot. Yep. So it's an interesting company. If you think about it this way, all the best companies do this, right? This is what they do. And whether they do it to a, to a lesser or greater degree, that's, that's an open to interpretation. But great companies are always innovating. They're always improving things. They're putting the customer at their center of the universe. And when they don't, that's when things drop. If you look at Walmart, okay, while Sam Walton was alive, okay, he put customers at the center of his universe, right? It was after he died that they lost that focus, okay? We tell a little bit of that story in this book. Yeah. Um, but... You know, it's it, again. This is this is another short book. We've just started. We 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 used to write really long books, okay. And then we decided that anything takes more than two hours to read is asking too much of business owners. We've always been focused on business owners, right? And when you focus on business owners, they don't have the time. We're going to focus on business owners here and talk about some practical applications of the concept of customer centricity as it relates to home service companies. So if I'm a business owner listening to this today or anyone, how can I become a more customer centric home service company? Because we're on this call and you're in Charlotte, I'm going to tell you one of the secrets to success that um, Morris Jenkins has had. Okay. And, and, and I just want you to think that one of the largest HVAC companies, I mean, in, in a kind of secondary market, right? They're not even sure. Right. It's not a huge market. They are huge dominant player. And one of the things that they, that they did that's very different is lots of people have clubs, right? I mean, seriously, lots of people have clubs. Yeah. And when you think about it, it's like, it makes sense, right? Like, Sure, I would want you to be a club member. And it, the, the, the usual promise of a club member is, well, you're our friend and we're going to treat you better, right? But what happens, and I've spoken to plenty of business owners, okay, and everybody's guilty of this or nearly everybody's guilty of this is that inevitably comes the day where it's 100 degrees, Okay. And the air conditioners are all breaking down. People yeah. are like, oh, we need to get the service out. And what happens is that you start prioritizing the installs, 
and you start prioritizing the people the the expensive installs, right? Well, what happens to those people who are your club members? They get the short end of the stick, okay? So here's the story. It's not legendary, but I can't give you all the details, okay, because I don't remember them. But general stories like this. Dewey Jenkins got fed up, and he got fed up because he realized that this was happening. And he thought about it, and he asked people why this was happening, and they, you know what? They kind of told him. Everybody told him. Well, there's money to be made. That's the revenue. That's where the money is. And all the incentives are built for that. I mean, everybody, the the technicians, um, right? The whole company down the line is built to take advantage of that. Yes. Okay. And Dewey was like, yeah, but we told these people that they were going to be first, that they were going to come first. And they, he made sure that people suffered the consequences of not doing it. He took it seriously. And, you know, like anything, people have to see that it's real. Mm-hmm. Okay. And when people started seeing that it was real, and when I say this is inside his company, not outside his company, inside his company, people realize that, oh, no, no. We're going to actually go see our club members, even if they're calling for a service over an install, okay, because they're our club members. They have one of the most successful, I mean, they have tens of thousands, many tens of thousands of club members because they mean it when they say that this is your priority, that you become a priority. and his technicians started selling it that way and the people on the phone started treating it that way and his customers could tell and they knew and they started telling their friends. Okay. So it's a very customer focused approach, right? Right. And, and it costs money in the short term, right? You get that like on a, on a hundred degree day in Charlotte. Okay. There's a lot of money to be made, but there's way more money to be made by having your brand be, you guys have integrity that you guys like you're i became a club member i became a you know it's funny it's like you're paying to be a special friend okay and you can look at that and say say that cynically right, right. and in most cases that's exactly what you're doing you're paying to yes. be a special friend and you're not a special friend okay but the big difference between that and the approach that mars jenkins took was no you're paying for for a privilege. You're actually a club member. We're going to treat you right. We're going to be there and take care of you. And that's made them extraordinarily successful. Right. Is that a good example? That's a great example. Now I want to zoom backwards to go back to your e-commerce days. And I want you to think about that time that you were scrolling around on an e-commerce site and you couldn't find anywhere to check out. All right. You remember that. And I want you to think about that in the context of working in home service businesses where there's, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of contractors today, and you cannot check out on any one site, including Morris Jenkins site. What are your thoughts about e-commerce and home services and customer centricity, giving a customer what they want? Well, so, so that is sort of a self-serving question on your part, but I'm going to answer Very it. much I so. Like, I like your approach. Okay. Yeah. I think that the idea that a customer 
um, should have to go anywhere other than your website, okay, for anything that they need having to do with HVAC, why are they doing that, right? If, if, if like, if you're their people, why couldn't they get the filters from you, right? And I would expect them to be at a really competitive price, okay? And I would expect you to have in stock whatever kind of filters I want. Right. That's that's I don't want to have to go to Lowe's. I don't want to shop somewhere else. I just expect you to have them, especially because you've told me that you care about me. Right. Right. So I like your approach. OK. Um, here's the deal. I have not actually done it. OK. So what I'm going to say is that's how it should be. And it should be really easy and it should feel good. If the experience is not a great experience, then you really shouldn't offer it. But if it's a kind of seamless experience, if it's smooth, if it's up to the standards of e-commerce these days, you should be doing it, right? And it's a good argument for why you shouldn't be stocking your own filters and trying to deliver them on your own. Yeah. But also, this is a hard thing to do. E-commerce is, as, as you know, is way harder than, than people imagine. Yeah. Um, you, you know, I've had people over the years say to me, well, you know, what do you want to do? And it's like, I don't even know how anybody, and, and I'm serious about this, okay? Because my customers had been all much bigger enterprise, you, you know, like we hadn't had a customer that didn't have a billion dollars in sales in the e-commerce universe in years, right? Everybody, yeah. I think maybe some of the small ones might have had hundreds of millions, right? But I mean, they were they were small. They were, we were doing them a favor. Yeah, it, it should be that experience, right? right. Um, it, it, when people come to us and say, oh, anybody can do this, and, you know, you can start small. I, I believe that. I believe that you could do that, but I don't know how. I think that if you're going to, trying to invest in an e-commerce business and you're spending any less than half a million dollars plus dedicating some full-time employees, it's kind of foolish. Right. Okay. It's like setting up a brand new retail store, right? You got to staff it. You got to put the inventory in. You got to set up the systems. You got to run it. You got to manage it. It's, it's a lot of work. Um, and so, Again, if it's seamless, if it's worthwhile, you should be doing it whether it makes you any money or not. Money's not the issue. You should be doing it because you're preserving the relationship with your client. That's exactly it. Yeah, we agree. Well, thank you for indulging in my self-centered question there. That's fair. I, I, I listen. As I said, you know, I I love the the, the I, I love the concept, and I have not tested it for myself. So I can't say yeah. you guys are doing the very best. Okay, whatever, but. It's got to be better than what anybody else is doing because you're professional and dedicated to just doing this. That I'm sure of. Yeah. And the concept is sound. Okay. That's what people should be doing. Yeah. I think our, our concepts align in that you want to put the customer first. And if you think about our industry, most of our industry's resources around training and, and development and all of the sort of thing with business, sales, whatever, is usually centered on the contractor side, which is fine as it should be how to fix things internally to make them more profitable or whatever. But back to your concept about Amazon, if you think about 
serving the customer first. And then to your point, if your customer is asking a question, try to be able to answer it, right? Keep them. Don't send them to the dark web of the internet to find out how much a heat pump costs. Yeah, I mean, there's bunches of things like this. I'll, I'll tell you, we've, when I go to this, I still find some very, very, very basic things. People get phone calls in. They get leads, okay? I, I watch this, okay? Somebody calls because they want service or whatever they want, right? And people say, well, we call them back. And I'm like, okay, when do you call them back? And they say, well, you know, same day. And it's like, wow, you're really proud of yourself for that, right? I was like, you realize that I have this little gadget here, okay? And at least in Austin, Texas, not every place, right? (laughs) But I could order stuff and I can have like a truckload of stuff delivered to my door the same day. So, you know, you're not doing something remarkable. The idea is that if somebody calls you and they want anything, okay, their attention span is like five minutes. Yeah. There were these, these, this, there was a study done by MIT. Okay. They, they have a business school, right? Kellogg, where they, where they studied this with business to business. It was not consumers. Okay. Keep in mind that businesses have more focused needs. Consumers are a little bit more, you know, a little less focused than businesses. But yep. with businesses, what they found was that if a call, wasn't returned within an hour, within one hour, it wasn't much better than a cold call. Right. Okay? If it wasn't returned within five minutes, it started declining. Okay. Mm-hmm. And basically after 20 minutes, it had already degraded to like 40% as, as likely to close. And it kept going down from there. So the idea is when a, when a consumer want have people available on the phone, uh, you know, I, I, I'm seeing this and I'm thinking to myself, well, it's not okay to turn off your phones. Okay. There should be somebody who picks up the phone at every hour. Okay. Even if it's just to say, we gotcha. Let me get on top of that. Let me call somebody and figure this out for you. Right. So it could be an answering service. It could be, but if you're big enough, there should be a live person answering who could do something i'm constantly surprised at this stuff and you know this industry has been largely immune from big competitors for a long time right but people have gotten the hang of this the technologies have caught up the private equity firms are putting in the money and the competition is really heating up Okay, Um, you know, it was okay to be doing, um, you know, to have two or three trucks for a while and you can make a nice living doing that. I I predict, I'm going to go out and predict something. I really predict things because when you record them, you sometimes sound foolish. But, you know, if there's 100,000 contractors out there today, and I'm I'm, I'm not sure that's a real number, okay, but if there's 100,000 contractors today, 20 years from now, I think that'll shrink. By 80%. I'm not saying that there won't be small independents, but it's going to require the, the what what happens is that people become accustomed to a minimum level. So there used to be a time where people would compare you to your direct competitors. 
Yes. Right. But people don't compare you to direct competitors. And this is not new, right? FedEx changed the expectation of when you needed to have documents delivered. All of a sudden, that's it's a right. big deal. The facts changed that. Email changed that, right? So documents went much faster. Um, deliveries go much faster. And because of the technologies today, smaller businesses, 10 million, 15 million, 20 million, are going to get bigger, okay? And they're going to be able to provide those minimum expectations people have, right? And the smaller guys, well, some of them will stay in business because they're just good people and they have their steady clients. Sure. Most of them, they're going to go out of business. And they're going to go out of business not not because um, they're going to lose money and they're going to no. It's just going to be hard to to do something, and they're going to just go back to working for somebody. Yeah. It's just going to be easier to have somebody with the bigger resources. So if you're be better in this for them. business and you don't have a growth mindset, um, this is not a criticism, right? If 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 you're um, especially like if you're my age. And right, if you're 56, it's not that old, but man, if you if you're thinking, you know, I I'm gonna do this till I die, yeah, maybe. Okay. If you're in your 40s, okay, and you're thinking this, you're delusional. Okay. If you're in your 30s and you're thinking this, okay, man, you need to you, you need a reality adjustment, right? There there is no way that this business stays the same. Everything is becoming digitized. Everything is becoming faster. And yes, today there are shortages of technicians. Okay, today there are all these different things. That will change. And part of what's changing it is, you know, diagnostics, right? Lots of the, lots of the things that people used to do um, by having to train technicians up and have technicians that, that needed, you know, five years of education well they're now able to attach sensors and whatnot and get even a better reading and if that hurts the feeling of the person who was there who's been doing this for 5 10 15 years i'm really sorry okay i've no doubt that they can't fix it as well but they can diagnose it as well or maybe better than you can and that's frightening because what it does is it starts commoditizing a lot of this so the Business will depend more and more on the relationships you're building, your brand, okay, and your your ability to deliver on that brand, right? So the customers and the systems, right? right? I, I know I get kind of repetitive about customers and systems, but that's just the way I see the world. No, I, I think that's super insightful. And I want to give you an opportunity. I know you've talked about Data Turk and we kind of went back to talk about some other things, but tell me what your vision is from a high level with Data Turk and how you plan to roll this out? What does that look like? Are, are other people going to have the opportunity to work alongside you or with you? And is it consulting? Is it software? My vision is probably way more optimistic and aggressive than what's justified. Okay. So right. I, 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 I don't like telling people my vision because they're going to say, oh my God, you know, that's, that guy's so arrogant. He's so like, well, who does he think he is? <laughs> But I'll put my I'll put my vision into the simplest words I can. Okay, yeah. one of the real pleasures that I got out of the career I had in marketing and writing stuff was when people would come up to me and say, "You know, you changed my world. You rocked my world. You taught me something. You changed my business. Um, 
you you made me successful and it would, I, I was like no I actually didn't you know you read my book you saw me speak you learned something that was cool but I've got to tell you it never loses its impact right mm-hmm. like it's it's always powerful thing to actually help people okay and I know that 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 may sound corny but once you get beyond like you know like I have a lot of books in the background and you know, I've got the swimming pool in the backyard. I've got a dog laying around here somewhere, somewhere. Um, yeah, it's on my couch. Life um, is good. Life, life is really good, okay? And once you get beyond a certain point, I'm not looking to build an empire. But what I am looking to do is definitely make an impact on this industry. Because what I'm seeing is lots of people, you know, this will sound strange, but it's lots of people like me, Okay. My dad was a foreman in a factory. Later on, he, 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 you know, he got to be able to work a little bit more white collar stuff. Um, you know, he worked in bank and stuff. But I have a, a, a different sense of the world in that nobody taught me a lot of the stuff I had to do. Like when I was 18 and I figured out that my parents didn't have enough money for me to be a historian, right? It's like I figured out I had to go make money. Okay. And I did a lot of stupid things. Okay. I've built businesses and I've lost business. I have, I have made and lost millions of dollars, but I've, when I say lost, I mean, hard lost. I mean, like, like not being able to pay rent lost. Okay. You know, like borrowing money for food lost. Right. So I know what, I I know how hard it actually is to, to think about these things how tied in people are and restricted by money. And what I want to do, this was, this, this is, is, is the thing that I want to do most is help owners think like owners instead of employees. Okay. There isn't this great merit in working hard. And it's the exact opposite of what I learned, right? Like when, when you grow up and you learn that, you know, if you work hard, you know, and, 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 and are honest and do everything that will all turn out right now. And you know what? Okay. I know lots of people who work really hard and I've seen a bunch of people right now. Okay. Who are making three, $400,000 a year, decent money, right? Pretty solid money. Um, and they own a business, Right. But they're slaves to that business. When they go away, things fall apart, right? You know, if they're not there, their business starts to collapse. Yeah. And what they are is they're fancy employees with the worst employer in the world, right? The worst boss is yourself, right? Totally. They're working really, really hard. You know, they call that sweat equity, except they're not actually building anything because they can't walk away mm-hmm. from it, Right. They're just sweating. And it, so, so, you know, it's kind of weird. I, I, you know, I don't want to be Michael Gerber. I don't want to just teach people. I actually want to be able to say, hey, guys, it's this, it's, it's this simple to step out, look at your business and see something differently. And so I see it through numbers. And mind you, I hate numbers. Okay. Um, you know, I, I never finished college because I was going to school. And working, okay? And the last course I dropped was statistics, okay? I, I literally had a remedial education later on in statistics. And so do I 
do I, can I say that I know statistics? No, I do not. I know the concepts I need to know because I learned them and I've had them explained to me or I went to books and learned them. So it's like all my education, lots of it is self-taught, right? But what I know is when I look at these numbers, they tell me a story, okay? I, I know things about your business. I All, all I want to do is help you look at them and understand it as a story. Like I get excited, I get emotional about it, okay? But what's really exciting to me is like when I was talking to my buddy Elmer and I helped him realize some really simple stuff, right? And it was like, he was like, and, and then he would get back stuck on a number and I was like, no, 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 no numbers. Let's not talk about the numbers. Let's go back to this, okay? What does it mean that these calls are abandoned? And I mean, like, there were numbers about calls. How many calls are abandoned? Or what? I said, no, 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 no. What does it mean that a call is abandoned? And I was like, okay, service type says this is what it means. And this, let's forget all that. It means that somebody didn't care enough to give this call a disposition. We don't actually know what happened to this lead. I said, if the, if you have a call that came in and you don't know what happened to it, it means that potentially there was a customer who called in and, and had a problem with their air conditioning. And you were like, screw you. I don't care. I don't care. Right? I said, let's, let's go back to starting to think about things that way. And we started telling the stories behind the numbers. Part of the way that that this that the call center got better was some consulting that was done, okay, by, by a specialist, right? Somebody who knew about call centers. But part of it was just explaining some of the simple thoughts behind how these things worked and why they were important. And so when you're able to look at look at a financial statements or look at um, the numbers that we pull out of service type and we're pulling stuff out with um, this, my partner's a data scientist. Okay. He worked at NASA for real. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, he worked on the Chicago board of trade. He's a brilliant guy. He, you know, in between um, all the years that we've been together, when he, when he was working at the last startup he worked at, okay. Bill Gates would come in once or twice a week and would sit next to him, literally next to him. Okay. Because they were working on data science stuff. Okay. Right. Um, so he knows what he's talking about. And like, you know, we're doing all these really sophisticated numbers, but the numbers don't actually matter. Everything we work on, and, and, and seriously, the, 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 the biggest thing we work on is this concept of whispering to our clients, okay? Mm-hmm. And it's about an insight. It's about having something that you know, not something that you can just put a number to. There's a difference between, you know, like, Anybody can can take a temperature, right? So tell me something. If your temperature is 103, what do you do? Seriously, what do you do? Do you call the doctor? Do you go to the emergency room? Maybe. Do you know what it actually means? No. No. Yeah. Right? But you actually know that something's wrong. So I might ask, yeah. what else is what else is going on? You know right? what you should know what questions to ask next. Just just basically, and this is right. this is the exciting part is that. Businesses are largely the same, right? So when you look at the, when we look at the numbers and we're extracting what we think of as stories, right? I keep saying to John, you know, want to think about words, and you know, like I have this book on my desk that has been amazing, making numbers count. Okay, it's kind of 
kind of a silly book, but he's, he's talking about the art and science of communicating numbers. Okay. But part of the way that we came at communicating numbers was when I would say something like, oh, this is, this is costing you on the order of about $5 million a year. See, that's not precise. Seriously, in, in my past life, if I'd been dealing with data professionals, they would have been like, well, you know that that's not really precise. Yeah. That right. Chew that up. No, but that's actually, but that's actually what the business owner needed to hear in order to right. understand and take action because the numbers were meaningless until they were turned into something that they could understand. Like what's the opportunity here, right? We were looking at things like their, you know, their sales turnovers on the technician side, right? And we looked at some of the numbers and said, well, the opportunity there, yeah, there's an opportunity there. But that opportunity, from what we can tell, that opportunity seems to be, well, what, about a million dollars a year? I mean, mm-hmm. listen, you know, we're not sneezing at a million dollars a year. But here's this thing, and it looks like $5 million. Which, which one do you want to work on? Right? And it became, quite, you know, became kind of clear. And it was easier as well. So the vision is to get that out to as many people as possible, right? Good. The vision is not everybody's going to have service type, not everybody's going to have it installed correctly, not everybody's going to have all these tools. But in in an ideal world, I can get people thinking about, about their business in a whole different way and thinking about it in a way that doesn't shackle them to the business. This episode, like all episodes, is brought to you by Contractor Commerce, plug-and-play online stores for contractors. We see a future where every contractor has an online store.